We knew that uh, Karis was coming. We didn't know her name. We knew it might affect our Sunday schedule. Uh, John was on the schedule to preach tonight. Um, and so when I found out Friday uh, what was going on and Saturday talking to him, knowing uh, things developed as they did, I just said, John, you just spend time with your family and we'll take care of things, whatever they are. And I knew that meant uh, our time tonight would not be in Thessalonians at all. And there's a really a life that uh, drawn to uh, for different reasons, um, Jacob's life and especially his life of prayer. I want to just um, look at uh, a few things from his life and consider. I hope these will be reminders to us, encouragement to us in our own uh, fellowship with the Lord by prayer. Uh, we know, I hope the story of Jacob, Jacob and Esau. Uh, we know, uh, according to scripture, how things unfolded there in his relationship with his brother. Uh, we know that uh, he, at a certain point, had to leave home. Uh, there was fear on his mother's part that Esau was going to kill him. There was also concern that he find a wife, and so that was the plan. And as he left, in Genesis chapter 28, we're told that he went, verse 10, Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran, came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set and he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with its top reaching to heaven and behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord, Yahweh, stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father Abraham and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie, I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. And if you just think about the scope of the promises of God to Jacob, this is grace upon grace to him. Uh, it is not because Jacob has been a good guy to this point. It's in spite of the fact that he's really not been a good guy. But God is good and gracious, and he's making these promises that he has made to Abraham and Isaac. And Jacob is chosen by God's grace. He does respond to the grace of God. At least in this moment, verse 16 says, Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. He was afraid and said, How awesome is this place. This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. Uh, this is Bethel, if we think in terms of the Hebrew words. So Jacob arose early in the morning and took the stone he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on its top. He called the name of that place Bethel. However, the, previously the name of the city had been Luz. Then Jacob made a vow. 
and said, if God will be with me and, I, and will keep me on this journey that I take and will give me food to eat and garments to wear and I return to my father's house in safety, then the Lord will be my God. This stone which I have set up as a pillar will be God's house and of all that you give me, I will surely give a tenth to you. This vow that he makes, promise to God in light of really asking God to do the things that, to a certain extent, he implied that he would do for him. And God hears vows when we make a promise to God. Uh, Sometimes in Scripture, vows are made in a time of crisis. Jephthah made such a vow. Hannah made such a vow. But one writer said, vows are made in storms and forgotten in calm weather. And I think you could say that Jacob, in the context of his life, had to be reminded of his vow, called to fulfill his vow, which, as you look at uh, the details of God's revelation to him through these chapters in Genesis, you see that God heard this vow, gave attention to this vow, called him to fulfill this vow. Uh, Jacob, of course, goes. He goes to Laban's household. He meets Rachel and Leah. And in time, he is given Leah instead of Rachel, who he requested. And then he gets Rachel as well. And then his family grows. And we're given the account of the growth of his family, circumstances of all that. And all this while especially Genesis chapter 30, Jacob's wealth as he is with Laban is growing. It's growing in spite of Laban's best efforts to do him wrong. Between changing his wages, making circumstances difficult, God still blessed Jacob. Uh, In fact, verse 43 of Genesis 30 So the man became exceedingly prosperous and had large flocks and female and male servants and camels and donkeys. Verse 1 of chapter 31, now Jacob heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken away all that was our father's, and from what belonged to our father, he has made all his wealth. So there's actually a transfer of the wealth of Laban into Jacob's hands in spite of Laban's best efforts. And now Laban is not looking at him so favorably. But look at verse 3 of chapter 31. It says, Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to the land of your fathers and to your relatives, and I will be with you. In concert with the previous promises back in chapter 28. And then Jacob recounts to Rachel and Leah his dream that he received from the Lord. Look at verse 4. Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to his flock in the field and said to them, I see your father's attitude that is not friendly toward me as formerly, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times. However, God did not allow him to hurt me. If he spoke thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then the flock brought forth speckled. And if he spoke thus, the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock brought forth striped. Thus God has taken away your father's livestock and given them to me. 
came about at the time when the flock were mating that I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream and behold, the male goats which were mating were striped, speckled and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and he said, here I am. He said, lift up now your eyes and see that all the male goats which are mating are striped, speckled and mottled for I have seen all that Laban has been doing to you. And just to stop there for a moment, what does that tell us? That God is paying attention when his people are harmed or when someone is trying to do them harm. And if God's intent is to bless, he's going to bless. There's not anybody who's going to stop God from blessing those whom he has determined to bless. And that's what's happening. And notice what he says. If you remember who is speaking, verse 11, the angel of God, this is the messenger of God. Or if I could put it this way, the messenger who is God, this is the angel of the Lord who's speaking. And so it's not a surprise if he is the angel of the Lord. I believe if we look at all of the teaching of the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament and connect it with the new, this is the second person of the Trinity. This is Christ pre-incarnate. This is before he came in the flesh. He was active in the lives of his people. In this case, he's active in Jacob's life, and he says, verse 13, I am the God of Bethel, that place where he'd been in chapter 28, where you anointed a pillar. God paid attention to that. Where you made a vow to me, he heard that vow. Now arise, leave this land, and return to the land of your birth. And that's God's direction to him in part to keep his vow. God graciously helps those who make promises to him to keep those vows. I think that's part of what's going on here. There's a reminder of this vow. There's a reminder of the promise of blessing. There's a reminder that this is the land that he's to go to. And he does. He takes off without Laban's knowledge. Laban catches up with him eventually. They have a not-so-happy interaction. And if you look at the end of the chapter, they set up this pile of stones. Have you ever seen this passage where it says that they they took stones and made a heap, verse 46? They gathered by the heap. Laban said, verse 48, this heap is a witness between you and me this day. Therefore, it was named Galid. And Mizpah, for he said, may the Lord watch between you and me when we are absent from one another. And sometimes this is uh, this little passage is popularized with a little two-part, you know, pendant sort of a necklace where there's a half of it that says one thing, half it says the other, and it's kind of like, like it goes together. And it has those words, may the Lord watch between you and me when we're absent from one another. It's oftentimes used for couples. But Laban and Jacob are not really a couple. They're basically don't cross over this heap, right? Or else there's going to be problems. That's As you read through the passage, you get the sense this is not really that kind of a relationship. Laban gets going and Jacob gets going. And it is, it is a wonderful thing to see in Genesis when God is, he's being God for his people. I think maybe Genesis sometimes is so foundational and new that we don't always think in terms of God and how he relates to his people. 
But for instance, he says to, to Abraham at one point uh, that he is Abraham's shield. I am your shield. What is a shield for? It's for protection. What did Abraham fear was going to happen to Sarah or himself? He, he was afraid he was going to be killed, that Sarah was going to be taken. And more than once, Abraham is lying about that. But God came to him and said, I am your shield. Now, obviously, with, with Jacob, he's already said to Jacob in chapter 31, I've seen everything Laban's doing. And this is how I blessed you. Return to the land. Now, returning to the land might seem like, well, that's what he's supposed to do. But it's in the context of him and his young family. Rachel, Leah, their little children, and they're coming back into the land. Of course, he's got all of his flocks and wealth, and they would be a target, just like Abraham would have been, Isaac would have been. And not just a target for uh, the people of the land, but Jacob knows if he goes back, right? Laban's behind him. He can't go back. God has told him to go forward, but who's in front of him? Esau. Esau, who the last time he was in Esau's vicinity, it was, I'm going to kill him. That was the expectation. So what does God do? Well, look at verse 1 of chapter 32. Now, as Jacob went on his way, the angels of God met him. Now, Jacob has already seen angels. He's seen angels in a dream. This doesn't indicate that it's a dream. It's actually angels who are meeting him. Verse 2, Jacob said when he saw them, this is God's camp. So he named that place Maenam, or two camps, his camp and the camp of angels. Now, I don't know about you, but if God was on my side and told me to go somewhere, and then he sent his army to camp near me, I think I'd feel safer. I think that's exactly the purpose here for Jacob was to give an indication of God's protection of him as he enters into the land. Now, is he fearful? I think we know that he's fearful as you follow this uh, chapter because verse three says, then Jacob sent messengers before him to his brother Esau in the land of Seir, the country of Edom. He also commanded them, saying, Thus you shall say to my Lord Esau, Thus you, says your servant Jacob, I have sojourned with Laban and stayed until now. I have oxen and donkeys and flocks and male and female servants, and I have sent to tell my Lord that I may find favor in your sight. He's anticipating hostility, and he's requesting peace and favor. So what does he hear? Verse 6, the messengers return to Jacob saying, we came to your brother Esau. And furthermore, he's coming to meet you and 400 men are with him. Okay, this is Esau's welcoming party. That doesn't sound like a welcoming party. There's no real news of uh, what he says. They just said, we came to your brother. He's coming to meet you. It is in light of this message that was given, but Jacob is afraid. Look at verse 7. And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed. 
And he divided the people who were with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two companies. For he said, if Esau comes to the one company and attacks it, then the company which is left will escape. So he's maneuvering. He's trying to protect himself, not in those movements looking to God, but he does look to God. And here's what is, I believe, commendable, a wonderful prayer for us to meditate on. Look at verse 9. Jacob said, O God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac, O Lord, who said to me, return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. For with my staff only I cross this Jordan and now I become two companies. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. For I fear him that he will come and attack me and the mothers with the children. For you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So he spent the night there. And this is, I believe, a prayer in desperation. It follows this signal of God's protection. He just saw the angels. He knows God has commanded him to come back. There's a signal of God's care and protection. And of course, God does use his angels to protect his people. You can see that in the scriptures. You can see that with Elisha. Uh, you can see that um, in the Psalms, Psalm 91, verse 11, he will give his angels charge over thee, lest you dash your foot against a stone. So we understand that God protects his people. And he sends his angels to protect them. There is, even in church history at times, uh, references to things happening that would be explainable in terms of angels. There's a story in John Payton's life. He was a missionary in the New Hebrides Islands. And one night as he was there at a mission station, there was a group of hostile natives who surrounded the mission station, intent on burning out the Peytons getting rid of them. They didn't want them there. And Peyton and his wife prayed that God would deliver them. And when daylight came after that night of the threat, they were surprised to see those attackers leave. They didn't actually attack. They didn't set fire to the place. And eventually the chief of that attacking tribe was converted to Christ. And remembering what had happened, John Payton asked the chief of the tribe, he said, what kept them that night from burning down the house and killing him? And the chief replied in surprise, who were all those men with you there? And Payton didn't know of anyone else that was there. But the chief said he was afraid to attack because he had seen hundreds of big men in shining garments with drawn swords circling the station. God protects his people. Here he's protecting the one who is in line with this promise that he's going to bless the world. God is going to bless the world through him, through Jacob. He's received that promise. And Jacob, in his distress, of course, has had news of Esau. He is afraid and he pleads with God. He pleads on the basis of those promises. As he says, verse 9, 
oh, God of my father Abraham and God of my father Isaac. He is in that line. This is in connection with the covenant that God made. And he has already made promises to Jacob. Notice in the context of his prayer, he says, this is what you said to me. Return to your country and to your relatives and I will prosper you. Esau and the 400 men headed his way. Lord, you said that you would prosper me. And he's really pleading the promise of God. He's also in the path of obedience. It's one thing to pray when you're not obeying God and you just offer a prayer of desperation. But if you're in the path of obedience and God has given you promises, you're in better standing. It's not to say that God won't hear you. God won't be merciful. Can God uh, hear someone who has sinned against him, not walking with him? Well, first it's a prayer of repentance. And then it would certainly be mercy that God would show. Spurgeon said, as he talked about this prayer, if you follow your own counsel, you must manage to take care of yourselves. But if you go where the Bible and the clear indications of divine providence guide you, you may always reckon that the master who sent you will protect his obedient servants. Let the dangers of the way be whatever they may. If God should command you to go to the utmost verge of this green earth, to rivers unknown to song, or if he should bid you to travel through distant deserts in the midst of Africa, yet he could preserve your life there as well as here in England. And being there sent by him, you may rest assured that you shall hear the sound of your master's feet behind you or have other mistakable evidences of his presence with you. Now, he's already seen the angels again, but he's still praying to God in the path of obedience. And if you find yourself in a situation of desperation, don't fail to call out to God. He's still your father if you know him by faith. And he doesn't answer our prayers just because we're obedient all the time. But there's no repentance that needs to be prayed here. There's no confession of sin, although there is an acknowledgement of his unworthiness. And this is the right way to come to God in prayer. Look at verse 10. I am unworthy of all the loving kindness and of all the faithfulness which you have shown to your servant. So this is a humble prayer. He calls himself God's servant. He speaks in terms of God's goodness to him and his thankfulness for what God has done, even though he's unworthy. Do you think of yourself that way when you come to God in prayer? I'm not worthy of what God has done for me. You look around and you see God's grace to you in your life, that he spared you, that he was merciful to you. Now, not only does he state that in terms of uh, God's loving kindness and faithfulness, but he actually elaborates on it. And what I mean is that he's actually kind of recounting God's goodness. Well, how had God shown his loving kindness? How had God shown his faithfulness? Notice what he says, end of verse 10. For with my staff only, I crossed this Jordan. What did he have when he crossed over it the first time? All he had was his staff. Remember, he had to get a rock for a pillow. I don't know how he found the oil to pour on the rock, but he didn't have much at all. And now as he looks upon what God had given him, remember what it said at the beginning of 
chapter 31, Laban's wealth had been transferred to him. Male and female servants, all these animals. If you just look at the size of the gift that he gives to Esau in the next chapter, you realize that's only a portion. Jacob was a very wealthy man. And it was all grace. With my staff only, I crossed this Jordan and now I become two companies. Now, you might not be able to say in terms of wealth, earthly wealth, that that's what you have. But those are not even worthy to be compared, are they, to the unsearchable riches of Christ. If you have Christ, you have eternal salvation, you have the forgiveness of sins, you have a home in heaven forever with God. We're not worthy of that. Jacob recognizes he's not worthy of God's goodness. And then he makes a very earnest and direct prayer to God. Deliver me, I pray, from the hand of my brother, from the hand of Esau. That is the issue. And he makes that his petition. And then he's honest and transparent, as we've been honest and transparent some of our testimonies tonight. We should be honest and transparent with one another, I think. it's. An encouragement to know that we are alongside others just like us who are of like passions. We need God's grace and help. But here, he's not talking to other people. He's talking to God. Have you ever told the Lord, Lord, I'm afraid. I'm afraid of what I'm going to say, or I don't know quite what I'm going to say when I talk to this person, when I want to witness to them. Notice what he says. I fear him. And uh, he gets even more specific than that because of the violence that Esau had spoken against him previously. He says that he will come and attack me. And then if he's a man of vengeance to also attack the mothers with the children, he cares about his family. He's watching over his family and he thinks Esau, who wanted to kill him and now has 400 men with him, there's a threat upon his life. And so he is honest and transparent in his prayer. And there's no good reason to not be honest and transparent with God. God knows. And so when you go to God in prayer, tell him like it is. Make your petition. Plead his promises. Now, he hasn't made the same promises to us as he's made to Jacob. But look at Jacob again draws attention to God's promise. Verse 12, for you said, I will surely prosper you and make your descendants as the sand of the sea, which is too great to be numbered. So his petition is based upon God's promises back in Genesis 28, God's reiteration of those promises in Genesis 31. He's walking in the path of obedience, but he's afraid in the path of obedience. And he makes this petition to God and he says, God, this is what you said. If, if my family is wiped out, if my children and my wives are wiped out, these promises that you made to me won't come true. And he, that's the end of his prayer. And he spends the night there and then he gets his present together. But as we look at this prayer, I just want to encourage you. This is a very biblical, godly prayer to make it a point of desperation. Drawing attention to God's goodness, being direct with God, pleading his promises. And does God answer his prayer? 
Well, he's not actually done praying. If you read through the end of this chapter, this is the scene in the end of this chapter where Jacob is alone and he's wrestling with God. Let's look briefly at that. Verse 24, as he, in the middle of the night, has sent his family over the fort of Jabbok. The fort is a portion of the river where there's enough rocks and sand to be able to get across the river easily. It's not like the river's just flowing. And so he sends them across and everything that he has, verse 24, then Jacob was left alone. And a man, the Hebrew word here is ish. Uh, it's not the word Adam, which would connect this person with humanity. But instead, it's talking about the form of this person. Angels are described this way. Men are described this way too, but I think the word is significant because of who he's wrestling with. And he's wrestling. It's kind of a mysterious scene. He's going across the river, and then suddenly we find him wrestling, solitary, struggling, exerting himself. And what is this a picture of? It's a picture of prayer. Let's keep on going. Verse 25, when he saw that he had not prevailed against him, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Then he said, let me go for the dawn is breaking. But he, that is Jacob said, I will not let you go unless you bless me. So he said to him, what is your name? And he said, Jacob. He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Then Jacob asked him and said, please tell me your name. But he said, why is it that you ask my name? And he, that is the man that he's wrestling with, blessed him there. Now, obviously, there's a number of things going on here, but we could say that part of what's going on is this is a man who is wrestling with God and he's wrestling in prayer, struggling, giving physical, emotional, spiritual effort. And as this is a prayer, and it's reflective of, the, of what prayer is, many have drawn from this passage that prayer really is a wrestling with God. It is an exerting of that kind of effort. David Martin Lloyd-Jones said, everything we do in the Christian life is easier than prayer. Perhaps this is why Martin Luther said that prayer is the sweat of the soul. It's hard work, especially as you persist in prayer and seek God's blessing and seek the answer. And according to the passage here, for Jacob, it's painful to keep on wrestling when God smites him. Verse 25 says, when he saw, that is the man saw that he had not prevailed against him, that is Jacob, he touched the socket of his thigh. So the socket of Jacob's thigh was dislocated while he wrestled with him. Now, if you've ever seen someone wrestling along with an injury, they're still wrestling even though they've been injured. What kind of determination does that take? And this person who touched his thigh, the word there means to strike or just simply to touch. And even if it's a strike, to put someone's hip out of joint by or dislocate their hip by a strike would be hard. Just to touch it would indicate supernatural power. 
That's what one writer said, a touch that dislocates indicates an opponent with superhuman power. And we know this is a person who has superhuman power. If this is God. And that's Jacob's conclusion as there's this question about who this is. Jacob says, I'm not going to let you go, even at his request, unless you bless me. And then there's the question of what's your name? Well, Jacob has to acknowledge my name is Deceiver. That's what his name meant. Supplanter, kind of the trickster, someone who grabs someone by the heel and trips them up. But what does the Lord say to him? He said, your name shall no longer be Jacob, but Israel, for you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. Now, there's a implication in that statement at the end of verse 28 as to what is going on. You have striven with men and with God, and you prevailed. Jacob wants to be certain. Verse 29, please tell me your name. But he refuses. But it's in light of that refusal that Jacob comes to understand what has actually taken place in the darkness. The one that he's wrestled with, perhaps in the midst of the wrestling, catching glimpses at different times of this person in the dark. If there's moonlight, we don't know. We don't really know what Jacob apprehends with his eyes. But he comes to the conclusion, verse 30, I have seen God face to face. He's been face to face wrestling with God. And he sought a blessing. And what is he received? Verse 29 at the end of the verse, it says, and he blessed him there. He blessed him there. Now, if you turn over to Hosea, and we'll conclude tonight. It's a wonderful thing when scripture has a commentary on itself. And we have that in Hosea chapter 12. Israel is now a nation, of course. But as a nation, the Lord is reproving them. And he is calling Jacob, the nation, to return to him. Look at verse 2. The Lord has a dispute with Jacob and will punish excuse me, with Judah, and will punish Jacob according to his ways. He will repay him according to his deeds. In the womb, he took his brother by the heel, and in his maturity, he contended with God. Okay, so in his adulthood, he contended with God. Yes, further explanation, he wrestled with the angel. It's the angel of the Lord. He wrestled with the angel and prevailed. He wept and sought his favor. He was seeking a blessing. And then it says, he found him at Bethel, and there he spoke with us. Even the Lord, the God of hosts, the Lord is his name. So who is Jacob wrestling with? Of course, he's wrestling with God. Jacob recognized it. I've seen God face to face, and yet my life has been preserved. But that changed him. This Passage and what was recorded there back in Genesis 32 changed Jacob. Not only was he not the same physically, but he was not the same person. He did go back to Bethel. When God called him again, go 
pay that vow to me. He literally said to his family, put your idols up. We're going to Bethel. He kept the vow. But he was a changed man after this. Not to say that he was perfect. There's still sometimes the same old Jacob. But God had changed his life in ways. And he signified that change by the name that he gave him. The name that he gave him indicated his striving with God, particularly in prayer. That characterized him. God gave him a name, no longer deceiver, but now one who strives with God. Wouldn't it be a wonderful thing to know, or to be known rather, not for the sake of popularity, but just for the sake of this is who you are in your life as someone who wrestles with God in prayer, who seeks God in prayer, who receives blessing from God through prayer. This is what we're called to as believers. This is what we're called to as children of God, to be those who come to God in prayer. John Newton wrote a hymn, connection with these circumstances in Jacob's life, and I'll just read it. We'll close here in prayer. Lord, I cannot let thee go till a blessing thou bestow. Do not turn away thy face, mine's an urgent pressing case. Thus thou ask me who I am. Ah, my Lord, thou knowest my name. Yet the question gives a plea to support my suit with thee. Thou didst once a wretch behold, in rebellion blindly bold. Scorn thy grace, thy power defy. That poor rebel, Lord, was I. Once a sinner near despair, sought thy mercy seat by prayer. Mercy heard and set him free. Lord, that mercy came to me. Many days have passed since then, many changes I have seen, yet have been upheld till now. Who could hold me up but thou? Thou hast helped in every need. This emboldens me to plead. After so much mercy passed, canst thou let me sink at last? No, I must maintain my hold. Tis thy goodness makes me bold. I can no denial take. When I plead for Jesus' sake, keep on persisting in prayer in Jesus' name. Let's look to the Lord in prayer. Father, sometimes we do come to you and we're not certain of your will, but we just plead with you to act according to your grace to us as your children. We thank you for those promises. And we thank you, Lord, that in life, certainly in eternity, you keep all your promises. Jacob, Lord, he knew your will, was able to pray in the light of it. Very specific promises, and we thank you for that. And we pray, Lord, as we petition you for things that we truly need and are in the path of our life, and we believe that they're right and good for us. We pray that we'd be humble enough to recognize that we could be wrong. But as we consider them to be right and believe in Jesus' name, we pray that you'd help us to persist in prayer for that blessing. And we thank you, Lord, that you have answered prayers. 
you do answer prayers. Many, and not because we're worthy, but because you're good. And we praise you for that. Lord, we heard some names tonight of people who are in need of salvation. And we lift them up to you. For Matt, for Austin. Lord, certainly there are others on our minds and hearts that need you. And we ask, Lord, for their salvation. We ask, Lord, we know that it's your will that we would be bold. So we ask for that. We pray for your grace and help that we might do your will and pursue your will in our lives. Give us a good week, we ask. Help us to find our joy in not only serving you, but proclaiming the gospel. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's turn in closing.